Hi, everyone. Just a reminder that this show is not legal advice, trading advice, financial advice, or personal advice. Enjoy the show, and thank you very much. This show is sponsored by Health IQ, getting people lower rates on their life insurance by staying fit, and also by the Veris Foundation, making solutions on the blockchain to tackle hospital administrative costs. Yo, yo, welcome to Crypto 101, the average consumer's guide to cryptocurrency. This is Matthew Aaron, and today we have on the professional cypherpunk, the creator of Statoshi, and a person that has almost 150,000 followers on Twitter, Mr. Jameson Lop. And Mr. Jameson Lop has been on podcasts on YouTube. He did presentations, wrote articles, and I was thinking, what could Matthew Aaron ask Jameson that hasn't been asked before? And after listening to about a half a dozen interviews with him, I realized one thing. Nobody bothered to ask Jameson, Jameson, who are you? What do you like? Where were you born? What do you do? What do you think? And why does that and how does that all relate to blockchain and your commitment to the cryptocurrency and blockchain space and the future of it? So that's what we're going to do here. We're going to get to know Jameson a little bit better. And hopefully at the end of this, you know a little bit about this man, Mr. Jameson Love. But before that, please go to Crypto101Podcast.com. That's Crypto101Podcast.com. There you can subscribe to us on iTunes. Please subscribe to us. Hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating. It helps us out a lot. Also, tax season. It's almost over. April 1st is right around the corner. Go to hit the button on the top to get $101 off your crypto tax preparation. Send us an email. See what's up. You can join us on our Twitter. You can join us on our Instagram. You can also come on our Facebook group and ask questions if you have any. It's a great place. Great people in the community. I love them. They're the best. We have the best community. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation and we will see you after the show. Jameson Lop, welcome to Crypto 101. Glad to be here. <laughs> Thank you very much for spending some time with us and letting us get to know you a little bit. Sounds good. So what I want to do today, Jameson, is this. I have a little bit of an outline of where we want to go. And I'll be honest, the first time that I heard Jameson Lop was on the Tom Woods show with the Bitcoin scaling debate with Roger Veer. And at the beginning of that, I didn't know who Jameson Lop was. But at the end of that, I knew who Jameson Lop was. And he was a calm, thoughtful responsible spokesperson for a certain side of the debate of the Bitcoin scaling debate. And at the end of that, I also knew who Roger Veer was. <laughs> and I would not go into that. And and I think that you really highlighted your personality and your temperament in that. So after that, you know, I just started going down the rabbit hole of different podcasts and different things like that and starting to get to know your ideas of Bitcoin and your jobs and your background, your history. But we never really understood who is Jameson Lop. So what we would like to do today is go through who is Jameson. Is that okay? This will be a learning experience. <laughs> and then also after we start talking about who is Jameson, we also want to start going into like what made Jameson who he is and what does Jameson think? Who like what does he think of the world? What does he think of society? What kind of world would Jameson want if he could make it right now? And does Bitcoin fit into that or is Bitcoin only a means to get to the where Jameson wants to go? And then after that, I would really like to talk a little bit about where is Bitcoin going in the future and how can average people take advantage of Bitcoin? And I got a couple questions just the other day on our Facebook group that says, Matthew, you have to find somebody that could tell us about the future of getting jobs, employing and using and being involved with Bitcoin for the average guy that may be a bartender, a truck driver or a plumber. How does he transition to this world? So I guess the first question is, Jameson, where were you born? Where are you living? What's up? <laughs> 
Well, I'm a native North Carolinian, so uh, East Coast United States. I think my heritage in North Carolina can be traced back to the late 1700s. It's been a a long tradition of mostly farmers uh, on both sides of my family. And uh, a number of my family are still, you know, very rural folk. Um, I'm definitely like the most uh, techie person on on either side. And I'm happen to be the third generation to, to go to UNC Chapel Hill. And that has been an interesting journey that, you know, from a sort of political standpoint, I've basically run the whole gamut of, of grown up in a very conservative family, mm. gone to a very liberal, uh, higher education institution. And then once I got out in the real world, I started uh, turning more libertarian and then eventually uh, sort of anarcho-capitalist. So you were, you were grown up in a conservative household, then you made the switch to maybe a liberal, then to libertarian, now to, you said, anarchist. And pretty much what was the spark to the, the change in ideology? And did you clash with your parents? Over the years, it, it started changing for me, I guess, around middle school when I started getting more into science and, you know, the scientific method and logical reasoning and all of that stuff. And that's when I started clashing around sort of religion and a lot of those upbringings. And then, you know, when I got to university, it was just such a very different atmosphere and different types of thinking that that sort of molded me a little bit more. Then, you know, I guess over the years, I, I felt like I, I was growing more disenfranchised with a lot of the existing political systems and started looking for c- completely different alternatives. Okay. And so, and, and I'm, I'm asking this because this is, seems like an average person's dilemma. You know, um, my, my, my parents, my mom is a Trump supporter. I am mm-hmm. not a Trump supporter. I don't know if you are a Trump supporter or not, but she voted that way. I did not. And I'm not saying I was supporting Hillary, but we definitely had our back and forth on Facebook and, and Twitter and, <laughs> and all these things. Did you ever have that point and your parents just look at you and go, you're crazy? Oh, yeah. Uh, though it was even more so with my grandparents because they were Ooh. even more you know, conservative and uh, – they, they had a lot of older style thinking, I guess, you know, from, I mean, my grandfather was a World War II veteran. So, you know, oh, he, wow. he, he grew up in a very different world and, uh, you know, he still had a lot of those perspectives. So there, there was a lot of clashing there. But, but these days, uh, I, I say, you know, I'm an equal opportunity offender and I'll say things that can simultaneously piss off both liberals and conservatives. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. So when you say you're an equal opportunity offender, what what does that mean? And what kind of ideology do you have that is Jameson Lop? And why why is it different from what we live in now? Being uh, an anarcho-capitalist, to be more specific, because some anarchists are actually really authoritarians. Um, but uh, it really, for me, fundamentally goes back to the non-aggression principle. Um, and this is this is sort of like a moral root upon which I, I build the rest of my ideologies, which is that you know you should not tolerate aggression against yourself, and you should not aggress against other people. And, you know, that 
is a very fundamentally different way of thinking than really any of the modern political ideologies. Basically, these days, uh, with all of the hierarchical nation-state systems, uh, it's a top-down enforcement of like, we're going to fix the world, and we're going to make it better, and we're going to do that by threatening certain people with punishment if they do things that we as a society have generally decided that we do not like. Okay, with what you said, I like the non-aggression, but you are a avid uh, Second Amendment enthusiast or, or, or what have you. How does non-aggression and the right to bear arms and the right to defend yourself – I guess it's only that you're, you won't strike first, but you have the means to defend yourself as somebody did. But are, Correct. But aren't guns part of the aggression as well as the non-aggression? Well, yes, like any tool, it can be used for good or evil, uh, can can be used for, you know, offensive or, or defensive measures. And so, um, you know, uh, there, there's a lot of vilification around these tools because of how some people use them. And, and, and as a result, people want to, you know, fix the problem uh, and they want to try to fix that by controlling the tools. But really what you find is that, uh, gun control just means that we centralize the control of guns into the authorities, you know, the the agents of the state, as it were. Um, I would be all in favor of gun control if it meant that nobody could have guns, mm. uh, at least in a general standpoint. Of course, then you, you can also make pretty good arguments that, that guns are in fact an equalizer, especially if we're talking about people who are less physically advantaged. And so right. it, you can in fact see that there are organizations like um, I think it's called like the Pink Pistols or something, which is a like uh, LBGTQ pro firearm organization, mm-hmm. uh, where the, they say things like, you know, we as you know, sort of disadvantaged minorities who get harassed a lot can mm-hmm. uh, defend ourselves by carrying these firearms. Uh, and similar things uh, like with women, for example who can defend themselves against men who would very easily physically overpower them if they really wanted to. You can really, you can take it both ways, but I I think one of the the main issues that comes up in a lot of these uh, debates around politics is that there are some people, probably the majority of people, who believe that, you know, we can make the world better by laws and, you know, crime and punishment, right, is, you know, if you have the right set of punishment uh, for bad behavior, then you make the world a better place. Right. And generally, this uh, the anarchist ideals get misconstrued as anarchists saying that the world will become a utopia if we get rid of a lot of the nation state apparatus. Mm -hmm. That is not the claim. The claim is just that the, the, the fundamental like morality of the way that the world operates will be in a voluntary nature. And of course there's a lot of things that would have to change in order for us to have voluntary interactions and uh, to replace a lot of the current nation state apparatus. But I think that we're getting there. Technology is making it easier to automate a lot of these things. And, and, you know, Bitcoin and blockchains are a part of that. I'm glad you touched on a lot of those things. The first thing I want to say is about the firearms. I, I understand where you're coming from with the, with the guns. It's, it's, it's a defense mechanism for people who are maybe less phys- physically advantaged or, or what have you. But then again, there's always a saying that says, guns don't kill people, people kill people. Well, planes don't go traveling, but people go traveling. But these, these technologies are made to make these things more efficient, traveling more efficiently mm-hmm. because of planes. You know, phones don't call my mom. I call my mom. But I can do that via Skype because of 
thank you, the internet technology. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. But this technology makes it really efficient to kill people. Yep. <laughs> he just says yes. <laughs> no, I mean, that's completely true. And, and so, you know, why would we want this efficient killing technology to only be in the hands of, quote unquote, law enforcement officials or, you know, military officials? Mm-hmm. I believe that it's better to have power as distributed as possible rather than concentrated as possible. And power, of course, can come in many forms. You know, with Bitcoin, we talk about distributing power over sort of the monetary system, distribute that as as far as possible, allow people to be sovereign in their power, controlling their own money. I I basically want to see that type of model for all types of power so that Mm. it's uh, as dispersed as possible and therefore as difficult as possible to be abused on a large scale. Beautiful. I I like that. So now you brought in distribution of power with the firearms, distribution of power with money. What kind of world does Jameson Lopp envision and see himself living in in the future? I mean, I am striving to bring crypto anarchy to the world. The idea that we can use cryptography to secure our interactions and make them, you know, not tamperable. So my perfect world is one in which you can engage in, you know, voluntary commerce and communication and, you know, exchange of ideas and value without having to worry about what some third party authority might do in response to that. Hmm. What are other ways you think that we need to be decentralized or there has to be more checks and balances of power in what other aspects of society? And is Bitcoin the one that starts the fire of under making people understand it? Or is it the actual tool to get this done? It may be some of both. I mean, basically, ever since the beginning of Bitcoin, there have been crypto anarchists and and anarcho-capitalists who have dreamed of a a long-term vision in which the disruption of nation-state-issued currencies actually brings about the death of both the the welfare state and the sort of uh, war state, the military-industrial complex. So, you know, there are some pretty good arguments to be made that it is in fact like debt and central bank manipulation of currencies plus of course taxation that really enables nation states to go to war with each other which has devastating consequences for humanity and results in hundreds of millions of people getting killed so that's a sort of utopistic outlook that you know perhaps the liberation of money away from nation states will in fact be a huge uh, strangle or disincentive for them to expend you know, billions and billions of dollars on, on weapons of destruction. Mm-hmm. And so blockchain is going to change that how? Part of the, the idea, of course, with blockchain just as a data structure is that it's providing you with a source of truth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a, a historical record that does not require trust in any third party. So... What a lot of these current systems do is that they're using trust in a third party who specializes in doing one thing to to then be more efficient uh, and basically command other parties to act in certain ways. So when you start to think of of those sort of trust points in the hierarchy as uh, the middleman, 
then using these decentralized technologies, which are very good at eliminating middlemen, that's really, I think, where the value add comes in. So whenever there's someone who's maintaining, you know, trusted uh, a record of, of something and basically controlling flows of data, whether that's like data coming up through the hierarchy or coming down from up top, then we may be able to replace them with blockchain, with you know smart contract, with some some sort of automated program that everyone agrees to and can be you know audited and is is basically trustworthy because no one trusts it. <laughs> right. What what would what would this world? What would this technology look like in in a normal ev- everyday average American or Western or any any family in the world? Well, I mean, I, I think that it's going to have to be pretty much under the hood, uh, you know, just like how a lot of Internet uh, and communications technologies work right now. So, you know, one not so hard to believe or contrived example of like a you know decentralized autonomous organization would in fact be a taxi company. So it's not hard to think of a fairly near future wherein there's a a taxi company that owns a bunch of self-driving cars and these cars are going around and picking up fares and they're collecting cryptocurrency from the fares and then they're driving themselves to refueling stations or maintenance stations or what have you and sort of engaging in this entire cycle all by themselves creating you know their own little economy and then when you look up one level to say, okay, well, you know, what's, where's the command and control aspect of this? Like, where's the owner operator who's telling all these taxis what to do? Well, it's actually a piece of software, potentially a smart contract, mm-hmm. uh, potentially some other, you know, just software running on some servers that is executing all of these commands and, and managing what the fleet of taxis are doing. So you can kind of take that example and and apply it in a number of different places at a more abstract level. Right. I kind of feel that there's going to be a perpetual motion of wealth generation in the future. It's like we have these companies like uh, Datum or, you know, these these companies that you're going to try to, you know, link to your Facebook and your Google and what have you to control your data. And you're going to have Internet of Things in all your appliances and, and what have you. So everything that you can touch, do by waking up in the morning, going through your day can actually generate some sort of revenue, some sort of data, some sort of thing that you will be able to monetize and move it to companies or blockchain or this, that, or the other thing. And then maybe even taking the taxi. Where does he go? Why did he get there? Or how long did it take him to get there? What, what cryptocurrency did he pay with? It was Litecoin or Ethereum, Bitcoin, what have you. I, I, I feel that it might just, society might move in a way where you're always generating revenue with your, your data and your involvement into society. Do you think that that could be the case? And would, what would that mean for the average person? And if you don't, why is that a bad idea? I haven't thought too much about the sort of day-to-day stuff or how, how that would be revenue generating. I, I usually think of it more on the standpoint of what is your particular specialty or your expertise and, and how can you automate that? Like how can you take whatever skills are valuable to you and have something that is making use of them basically running 24-7 and making you money while you're sleeping? 
One of the interesting aspects of being a software engineer is that, you know, I can project my will out into the world. I can write these instructions for how I want to manipulate data or you know, execute certain ideas. And then uh, computers can basically be doing that on my behalf 24 7, 365. So that's kind of like going back to the the taxi example I brought up is, you know, okay, I have an idea for a business, so I want to run a taxi business, but I don't want to actually, you know, spend all of my time running a taxi business. I want to figure out, you know, how to codify my idea of the business and then have computers actually execute the business itself. So, so perhaps that type of concept can be used once we have the ability to run these new types of programs that uh, give us better operational security and can really be their own organizations. And, you know, this can potentially get even crazier when you start talking about uh, machine learning and artificial mm -hmm. intelligence right. and all of the things that, that computers are going to be better and better at doing. Right. Jameson, I'm going to take this back a little bit and just go a little less serious. You have 142,000 followers on Twitter. At one point, did you wake up in the morning and go, holy shit, I have 142,000 followers on Twitter? Well, uh, 2017 was pretty crazy. You know, once I got over 100,000, it started being just hard to believe. But I think it was really just following the the hype cycle there in 2017 and for for whatever reason, I must have picked up the attention of a few bigger players in the space. Um, like I think like uh, Naval Ravikant, for example, and uh, actually Jack Dorsey at Twitter, like some other big folks like that. All I can really guess is that somehow, you know, they're listening and following me kind of extended my reach. Uh, might have gotten, you know, a few retweets here and there from them, which really exploded the following it's really tapered off a lot, though. Uh, you know, after the recent correction, at the peak of it, I was getting more than a thousand followers every day, oh. and and at this point, I think it's a few hundred followers a day. Right. So um, I kind of expect the same thing to keep happening with future hype cycles. Uh, just in general, as more people start coming into the space, um, and then some of them go to Twitter or other social media and and start kind of looking for the folks who are saying interesting things to follow. So whether that's from investing standpoint or ideological standpoint or whatever, you know, gets people into crypto in the first place. I, I think this is still just the beginning. Uh, even the most popular folks in crypto, I think Charlie Lee is kind of leading follower scoreboards these days. I think he's getting <laughs> like 700,000 plus and I've spoken to him. I'm like, dude, how do you get that many? And he's like, I don't know. I just talk to a lot of people. Like, he he seems to think that it's just engagement of, mm -hmm. you know, basically the more time you spend on Twitter, the more folks you interact with, the the larger your reach becomes. You know, as long as you're not right. posting really crappy, <laughs> you know, low grade stuff, then uh, there there's going to be people who are interested in all different aspects of the crypto ecosystem. With how many followers you have, do you feel that you have like this new responsibility? when you communicate on Twitter? 
A little bit. I mean, I changed my tone a little bit a few years ago. So in in the early days of the scaling debate, I was pretty angry. Mm. I was, you know, frustrated that I felt like the, the experience of Bitcoin was changing for the worse mm-hmm. and that Bitcoin was kind of stalling out on the innovation front. And I was frustrated with some of like the moderation actions that were happening on different forums. And so I I became a big supporter of Bitcoin XT, and I actually was a moderator of the Bitcoin XT subreddit. And I did that for, you know, at least six months until eventually I realized that basically what had happened was we had created this new community of extremely like negative, pessimistic, unhappy people. And it was just sort of creating its own negativity cycle. And so I I got fed up with that and distanced myself from it and tried to just be more optimistic in general over the past few years. And, And I think that that may be one of the reasons why my follower count has gone up a lot more is because I try to avoid engaging in vitriol and, and hate and mudslinging mm-hmm. and uh, just the, the general negativity that a lot of people seem to hold. I, I just I think it's not very productive. And it certainly upsets some people that they kind of see it as like a group think or double think and sometimes of an example of this would be, oh, uh, the price is up. Well, that means, you know, Bitcoin's doing great and adoption is awesome and we're going to the moon. Mm-hmm. Oh, the price is down. Oh, it means Bitcoin's on sale. We can buy more and we'll just, you know, wait for it to go back up again. <laughs> and, um, you know, that type of, of double think can be off-putting for, for some people. But I think that optimism in general is an important part of sort of the community cohesiveness and that you know what we're doing here is we have these very interesting technical innovations but there's also some very fascinating sociological phenomenon that is going on and that is part of the reason why you see so much clashing between different uh, subsets of these ideologies but really what we're doing is we're trying to build a community and an ecosystem and having some some like self reinforcing memes and inside jokes and, and all this other stuff is one important aspect of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now a word from our sponsor. Yo yo, this is Matthew Aaron, and a couple of things you guys probably don't know about me is one, I'm a vegetarian, and two, I wake up every morning at six thirty, go for a run, and hit the gym. That's every day besides Sunday. Sunday's my pizza day. And did you know that an overall healthy lifestyle is associated with 57 to 60% lower risk of cardiovascular disease? And that lifting weights reduces the risk of heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and arthritis? Well, today's sponsor, Health IQ, knows this. And they're an insurance company that helps health-conscious people like runners, cyclists, weightlifters, and vegetarians get lower rates on their life insurance. If this sounds good to you, go to healthiq.com crypto and put in our promo code, crypto. That's healthiq.com slash crypto, promo code crypto, and they'll help you out and see if you qualify for lower rates on your life insurance. When you visit your doctor or hospital, the total administrative expense of getting paid for the services they provide is $60 billion a year. In the industry, this is called the claims process. This expense is due to insurers and physicians not trusting each other, keeping duplicate records and systems, and providing no transparency in the process. This is exactly the type of problem blockchains are created to solve. 
problems that include trust, transparency, and the need for authoritative records. The Veers Foundation is a U.S.-based nonprofit with a team consisting of nearly 200 years of experience in all aspects of the claim process. The Veers blockchain is fully functional and currently testing sophisticated smart contracts to solve this problem. The Veers Foundation's presale begins March 19th with a 20% bonus. Full crowd sale begins April 2nd. Visit VeersFoundation.com, that's V-E-R-I-S Foundation.com for more information and register in the presale. Now, back to the show. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In, in terms of the space, companies, ideas, people? It's very easy to get frustrated by things that you don't like, especially because you know no one actually has control over any of the aspects of these systems. Mm-hmm. This actually kind of goes back to the, the difference in political systems of, you know, basically with a lot of the political systems, these representative democracies that, that we see all over the world, mm-hmm. when people get upset, they lash out and, you know, yell at their legislators and basically try to pressure them to change things. And so we saw similar types of political actions and rhetoric happening inside Bitcoin uh, over the past few years. And really, like all of those things pretty much failed because Bitcoin doesn't work like that. You know, there there are no authorities that control it. As much as you might hear, you know, various FUD about Blockstream or, or AXA or Bilderberg or whatever, like there are no entities that have control <laughs> over these networks. And it's, it's, you know, it's so convenient to come up with some scapegoats so that people can rally around and hate on those scapegoats and, you know, create their own echo chambers. But that's just not how it works. It is a very distributed system of individuals and these individuals cannot be coerced to do certain things against their will. Mm -hmm. It really is a different method of finding consensus. And so that's kind of what led me to take more of a a Zen approach. And uh, I really, I outlined a lot of my philosophy there in the the article that I wrote called Nobody Understands Bitcoin. I think that you kind of have to take that approach that, you know, none of us really know what Bitcoin is. We're still exploring and trying to figure out. And and the system is kind of emerging over the years as we begin to learn more about, you know, how we can interact with it. So there's a lot of people who are experimenting and and trying different things, uh, technical things or social things. They're basically poking the system and trying to see if they can manipulate it in certain ways. But I think there's no point in getting upset about any of this. Even if you think that someone is doing some sort of action that is completely reprehensible. I mean, sure, you can yell at them on Twitter or, or Reddit or whatever, but I think that ultimately that that is not going to have much of an effect. You're just going to be wasting your time. What is something that you love in this space? The community has become 
one of my best networks of, of friends and, and like-minded people. It's become this, you know, th- common thread with people all over the world where I have, I've done more traveling in the past few years than I've done in my entire life. It transcends, you know, nation states, borders, cultures, what have you. you. You can be from any type of background and have some aspect of these crypto systems that gets you interested. And it doesn't all have to be one thing and it doesn't have to be a libertarian ideology. You know, you, you might be in some third world country that just has a really, really terrible currency. And so you now have a great incentive to get involved in uh, something that has basically positioned itself as your uh, escape hatch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool, man. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't bring this up. Hey, congratulations on the new job. Thanks. Uh, yeah, t- technically today was my first day, so um, I've got to dive in head first. Yeah, do you want to tell anybody about the new company or the, the new job? Sure. So I'm, or I guess you could say I'm a partner in uh, CASA, which is a new cold storage, non-custodial, multi-sig solution. We're starting with Bitcoin. We'll potentially add a few others once we feel like we, we get the initial concepts up and running solidly. But uh, the general idea being that it's actually straightforward to get the ultimate security in Bitcoin. All you have to do is take the private keys offline and you know never let them touch the internet. And, and once you, you do that, you bring it into the realm of physical security, which is a pretty well understood problem. So that enables people to quote unquote be their own bank. But there's a reason we have banks, and that's because very few people want to go through all of the measures that you really have to do to have good physical security. Right. So at Casa, we are building a three of five multi-sig solution. And the idea is that CASA will hold one of those keys as a recovery mechanism. You're going to hold three keys on separate hardware signing devices, preferably separate companies and brands. And then you'll have uh, one key in a trusted execution environment, like a secure element on your phone. And you'll run a mobile app on the phone, which can then use these other hardware devices to actually sign. But the idea being that, you know, you keep all of these keys in geographically separate locations so that a, a hacker can't get in and take them because they're not actually connected to the internet Mm -hmm. and b uh, even if a physical attacker came to you then it's going to be very very difficult and time consuming to actually go and round up all of the keys (laughs) right Uh, especially like if you're holding them you might hold one or two in you know a bank itself right so uh, we're, we're just we're, we're trying to bring that level of bank security to people who have, you know, so much crypto wealth that they want something that is better than a bank. But they also don't want to spend days and days of actually going through onerous uh, security procedures in order to secure the private key material. We feel like the hardware wallets that are out on the market do a very good job of that. We just need to leverage them with the right software and the right, you know, user flow to allow people to to set up and manage these keys in a a fashion that a a fairly normal human should be able to follow directions. I really, really hope I have that problem one day that I have so much (laughs) cryptocurrency. I need to look out, look for you guys uh, to help me with that. And anybody in particular you guys going to be reaching out to, to put their crypto in there? The the Winklevosses, Brock Pierce, Roger Veer, 
Well, we have already had uh, quite a few people reach out to us. So, you know, I oh, think wow. that uh, we, we shouldn't have to do too much marketing. I think that what we've we've stumbled upon a sort of a gap in the marketplace for, for this type of uh, offering. So it, it sounds like uh, they're probably going to come to us. Cool, man. Cool. Well, congratulations on that and uh, good luck with your new project. Thanks. I had a question on Facebook the other day and a couple guys asked, how do average people get into Bitcoin or blockchain or start getting employed in the crypto space for the average person who might not be, you know, skilled in, you know, coding or doesn't have a technical background, but really wants to start looking at a career in blockchain. What would you suggest? Well, there are definitely, you know, as as more companies come into the space, then there are more non-technical positions available. So there's there's definitely a, a big demand for recruiters right now, but also just you know more traditional aspects of business like accounting and HR and marketing and what have you. And in fact, I recently added a new section to my uh, Bitcoin resources list, which is crypto careers. And I think there's at least like half a dozen different sites out there that are dedicated to different job listings. So while you know, I think that the the technical positions are still probably an order of magnitude greater in number than non-technical. That is more of an indication of how early we are in the stage that, you know, we're still in the early building stages where the, the folks who are most in the demand are the builders. So um, one of the, the questions I've been getting more often is, you know, how do I become a programmer so that I can then become a you know, blockchain developer? And that is something that I think there's not really a simple answer to. There, you know, there are various programming courses that you can take online or boot camps that are a couple of months, but those are generally like learn how to do web programming classes. Whereas to actually get into doing, you know, crypto financial stuff, especially if you're at the protocol level. Uh, you really shouldn't be doing that unless you've got at least uh, like a four-year computer science degree, if not like a master's or PhD, because that level of software engineering is more analogous to like aerospace engineering than to web development. It's a lot less forgiving. You need to be much more of a perfectionist in order to, to build these type of systems so that they don't get exploited. Right. And your site is lop.net, L-O-P-P.net, right? Yep. Cool. I think people are going to start checking that out, right? And they hear that. They're like, oh, careers. <laughs> All right. <laughs> just, a, just a question about the, the, the space and like apps and, and things like that. Maybe this is too direct, but why does everything suck? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know what the, what the problem is. Is it the problem with the technology or is it a problem with the developers? Because besides like maybe Exodus Wallet, everything looks horrible, is not user friendly, but you have a, like an app store on iTunes or Google Play that have beautifully designed apps and games and things like that that are working properly. And then somebody downloads a wallet and they're just like, this isn't the future? What? Mm-hmm. So where's the disconnect between things that are happening on the blockchain? Even these companies that are coming out, they're raising hundreds of millions or billions of dollars and the people in the user interface. Well, there is a little bit of a disconnect simply because the underlying technology is a lot less forgiving and you can you can run into edge cases where if if the developer didn't think about these edge cases ahead of time then it can very easily end in um, you having like a wallet that basically gets stuck what is Um, an edge case so basically a like specific scenario where uh, the user performs an action and 
potentially like the data tied to their wallet or their account or what what have you is in a state that the developers did not consider. So, you know, one example of this would be something that I've seen many times over the years where a user creates a wallet that receives thousands and thousands of tiny little transactions over the years and then they go to spend it and you know their wallet tells them they have say a balance of of 10 bitcoins and they they say okay i want to you know spend these 10 bitcoins and they try to spend it and the wallet just fails <laughs> it tries to create a transaction and it says you know can't do it and it's not obvious to the user what's going on because the wallet's telling them their balance is 10 bitcoins but what they don't understand and what the wallet isn't communicating to them is that under the hood there are various limits where you can only create a transaction that has you know so many hundred inputs at a time mm -hmm. and so you know their actual balance that they can spend in one transaction is more like half a bitcoin and so that i think that's one of the main disconnects in the traditional financial system, if you have a certain amount of money, then that's how much you have and you can send it. And if you want to send it all at once, you can probably do that. But in these systems, you know, it's it's a completely different data structure under the hood and the network itself will not allow certain actions to happen. So that's one cause of it. I think another cause is just that a lot of the folks who are getting into it early in the game tend to be the, the nerdier, like back end uh, type engineers, at least, you know, that's what I am. That's what I think the vast majority of us at BitGo were more of the back-end coders. And we started to hire more front-end design folks, but only really in the past year or so. Mm. So I think it's, you know, it's going to get better as the ecosystem grows and matures. You'll you'll start hiring more designers who are, are thinking more like the the web app developers and mobile app developers. But even then, you know, they're going to need to get trained to understand, you know, what's going on under the hood in order to actually translate this into a user experience that is manageable. Right. A couple of general questions. What is Jameson listening to, reading, and watching these days? Well, what's mostly your... Twitter. <laughs> Just Twitter? <laughs> well, what's on your, what's on your uh, Spotify? So I actually, I do not really listen to music much anymore. Uh, I used to back in the day, but these days, if I'm, if I'm listening to anything, then it's probably going to be some sort of presentation, whether it's like uh, Andreas's latest presentation, because he pumps those out uh, pretty often, right. or the occasional podcast. I mean, there's so many podcasts today that I can't you know even listen to a tiny fraction of them. Um, right. my, my standby is Let's Talk Bitcoin. Andreas does a really good job uh, distilling a lot of complex concepts, and and that's you know something that that I am always aiming to be better at. So you know if, if he comes up with a great way to explain some concept, then I'm absolutely going to steal it and and use it to <laughs> you know continue to to help spread the Bitcoin mind virus across the world. And hopefully, if I say something interesting that is also good, then he'll steal whatever I said and use that. And uh, you know we're all just trying to build off of each other's work here. Right on, man. Right on. That's cool. If somebody was coming into the crypto space, and this was the first podcast they listened to, because Crypto 101 is, is great with that in the SEO. It's like they say, hey, Crypto 101, hey, and we pop up, so they start listening. <laughs> so it's, it's very possible this could be the first podcast they listen to. What would you want them to know about getting into the crypto space, and what, how would you want them to conduct themselves? So 
one of the the main things is that this this is kind of a wild west because it's so new and and people are just coming up with new ideas and and you can make a strong argument that the whole thing is still an experiment but also because there's no authority there are certainly you know quote unquote thought leaders and authority figures and whatnot but really none of them actually have any power over the system uh, they might have some sort of social media influence but because no one really controls the system you have to realize that this is an open collaborative project and that's the reason why i got into it initially was just from the high level of saying, you know, what is money? You know, money is this concept that I think belongs to humanity at large. And as such, humanity at large should have input into how money works. So anyone who actually cares enough to contribute their time and their resources into saying, you know, I believe that money should work in this way, they should be able to do that. You know, we shouldn't have the aspects of our monetary system dictated to us by some authority who claims to, you know, know how to run the economy or what have you. So because of that, everyone should realize that like their input matters. You, you shouldn't allow someone to make a feel appeals to authority, whether that's, you know, saying, oh, you know, Satoshi's vision was this or whether it's saying, you know, Andreas Antonopoulos's vision is this or Jameson Lopp's vision is that. No, uh, what matters is your vision. You know, what do you think the attributes of a sound monetary system should be? Well, let us know. Like if it's something different than what everyone else is saying, then you should contribute and you can contribute from a code standpoint. You can contribute from a social standpoint. Like one of the reasons that I think that sort of crypto Twitter and the other social networks are so on fire all the time is that what we're really trying to do is come to a consensus. We're constantly trying to find the you know human meat space consensus of, of what this monetary system should be like. Eventually, that gets turned into code, but the fundamental, you know, underpinnings of the code are, in fact, the the wills of the humans that are involved in the system. Thank you for that answer. And but it brings me to uh, another question. <laughs> the, 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 the question is, how does somebody let me, let me frame this? I didn't know about uh, the monetary system that I think is important until I moved abroad. I'm calling you from mm -hmm. Taiwan right now. And it wasn't until I needed to start getting money from the States into China when I was living in China. And then it wasn't until I, w I had to get the money out. And it wasn't until I spent time in Hong Kong and saw the, um, a lot of the Filipino uh, workers there try to get money back to their home. And then the government trying to tax the money that they've been taxed on already in the Hong Kong, trying to send back to their, their family, tax it again as income. And then I didn't really understand again, and this is just a recent evolution, of how important cryptocurrency is and how functional it is until I started having bloggers and editors and, and people around the world, honestly, and I had to start sending them funds and interacting with them. So how does somebody from maybe their life start actually putting the importance of this monetary system and start framing it and moving it forward? 
Yeah, well, I mean, you, you've basically described the sort of organic nature that brings certain people into this system. And and that's why I think the growth of the system should not so much be current users and insiders evangelizing the system, but rather it should be the engineers who are building it and then creating utility for the people who are experiencing the pain points you know, with the existing traditional systems mm. so that they search out for alternatives. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it sounds like that's basically how you got into it is that you know you encountered so much friction and so many uh, different pain points that you you started looking for alternative payment systems and it just so happened that some of them existed mm. so i kind of i i want this to continue to grow organically because i'm actually a little bit worried with like the recent bubble we may have you know overhyped and overextended a bit because you know to be honest if crypto went completely mainstream tomorrow where like, you know, everybody around the world started using these systems, then it just wouldn't work. I mean, none of these systems have the technical capability at the moment of actually offloading all of the the activity, the economic activity from traditional networks. So I think that it is important that, you know, we continue to grow, you know, one bubble at a time, as it were. Mm-hmm. So if something does bring a person into this space, then once you actually get into it, I think it's important to learn the history of how we got to where we are today. Because if you don't do that, you're going to inevitably repeat the mistakes of history. That is, you know, you know, you're going to go and and try different things or recommend different things that have been done a thousand times before. So um, from that standpoint, uh, I actually I think I have a uh, a section once again on on my website that's like crypto history. Oh, cool. And I think one of the first parts of that is the historical article I wrote about the cypherpunk movement, you know, going all the way back to the 80s. What is a cypherpunk? The the cypherpunks were basically a bunch of nerds in Silicon Valley (laughs) in the 80s who were very privacy conscious and they saw, you know, the rise of the Internet starting to happen. And they realized that the Internet was actually horribly, horribly open and transparent in terms of privacy. Basically, there was no privacy on the Internet and they foresaw, you know, a sort of uh, dystopian Orwellian future where everything thing that you were doing was was getting surveilled because of how easy that was and so they really committed themselves to building privacy enhancing technologies and that resulted in things like PGP and SSL and uh, a, a lot of the encryption technologies that are commonly used today. And along with these other encryption technologies, there were folks who were trying to build uh, digital money. And so there were, in fact, probably dozens of different digital monies created over the decades, and they all failed generally because they were all centralized and had single points of failure. And then, of course, eventually in 2008, 2009, Bitcoin comes along and uh If you look at the history, a lot of the cypherpunks actually dismissed it. They said, oh, this has been tried before. It's going to fail for this reason and that reason and whatever. And so, you know, when Bitcoin came out, it was not this widely heralded amazing thing in the eyes of the cypherpunks. It was just another project that was probably doomed to failure. 
So it, in fact, kind of became the unicorn and became the one that succeeded. And uh, we've been working on it for, what, uh, nine years now? And now it has actually spawned this entire ecosystem just off of the, the few fairly simple ideas that were put together by Satoshi Nakamoto. Besides the ecosystem that it spawned, is it actually a good technology? Something that's going to be used in the future. The idea is there, the idea and seeing it implemented, but is Bitcoin the future? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the question, I think, becomes like, is Bitcoin the MySpace of cryptos? And so, you know, will it get uh, supplanted by a superior network, essentially? Right. And I think that like social network or music sharing technology analogy doesn't really work as well because while Bitcoin is a sort of social network of sorts, it is fundamentally a protocol. And so what you're really asking is, you know, will this protocol get supplanted by a new protocol? And from that standpoint, I think it's important to once again look at history and see like the history of networking protocols and, and how those have changed over the years. And if you look at them, actually, what tends to happen with popular protocols is that they ossify, they kind of freeze, and people stop changing them because they don't want to break anything. And so you can look at, you know, HTTP, for example, or SMTP, the email protocol. These things have not changed, I think, in 20 years. Mm -hmm. And they are not perfect. Right. They, you know, they could be improved. But at this point, they're so widespread that right. rather than anyone trying to improve at the protocol level, they're improving it on layers above that protocol. Right, right. So I think that a similar type of evolution is going to happen with crypto asset protocols. Very good point. Very, very good point. Who's a person or a project that you would tell people to pay attention to in the space? Well, um, I'm highly biased, but you know, my answer is generally going to be pay attention to the cypherpunks. And, and so that doesn't mean just Bitcoin folks. When I'm looking at technical privacy conscious individuals who I believe are vicious in terms of ripping apart ideas and yet polite in terms of you know, having social interactions, those are the, the type of people that I want to see building this technology. And so, you know, I respect a lot of the, the folks who contribute to uh, Bitcoin Core. I respect a lot of the folks who contribute to Zcash and Monero. I'm a big fan of the contributors to Mimblewimble and Lightning. For, for me, it's more about A, are the people smart, but B, do they hold the ideals, you know, the, the same values that I have and can they communicate and collaborate? And so as a result, you know, there are people and projects out there that I believe don't hold the same ideals and they aren't as good at collaborating or communicating communicating in adult fashions. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I, I try to just avoid them. You know, I, I don't want to waste my time arguing right. with them or, or telling them that they're bad people or anything. I just want to spend my time collaborating with the people that I think are, are going to take us to that crypto anarchy vision that I'm holding in my head and trying to bring into reality. Jameson, thank you very much for coming on the show, and thank you very much for the hour of your time to sit here and a couple of Skype drop calls, so we have to recall a couple, <laughs> a couple times. 
That pesky internet, it's so complicated and unreliable. If it was only on the blockchain. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good night. I hope to talk again. Will do. Been a pleasure. All right, brother. Bye. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Crypto 101. I'm not going to take much more of your time because it's already been about an hour. Jameson, if you're listening, thank you very much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure and an honor to talk to you. Also, like always, ApogeeCrypto.com. This site is not only checking your prices. You can also go on there and see your charts, track your portfolio. You can get links to the coin's websites and Twitters and Instagrams and whatever. All from this site. Your favorite podcasts are there. Your favorite YouTubes are there. Also, if you want your crypto news, go to whenmoon.co. It takes all of the news from all kinds of different sites and puts it into one space. And the best thing is these websites are made just by average dudes. Me and you, the good guys, check out their sites. And if you haven't heard Aaron Paul on ICO 101, check it out. A Crypto 101 podcast just for ICOs. So thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode of Crypto 101. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.